0: Can be New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Well, Welcome to New Life Foursquare Church. This weekend is Next Gen Weekend. And what makes that unique is that everything that's happening here at the church, everything, is being overseen and operated by those that are 30 years old and younger. And this is as a result of the vision of Pastor Ron and the rest of the New Life leadership team to be intentional about releasing the next generation of leaders into active ministry. We have all been granted a place at this table, and I, for one, as both a young leader that has been raised up here for the last several years and also as one now that's tasked with helping develop other leaders, I can tell you that this intentionality towards raising up the next generation of disciples, it will be a huge blessing for many people, for many years to come. So it's just a, it's a neat thing to be a part of this church, I think. So, uh, hey, welcome. Tonight, or this morning, excuse me, we're going to be talking about living in your first love. And let me point your attention here. If you've got a smartphone and a bulletin, this little thing back here is a little code that you can scan with your phone if you've got a free QR reader app. And it will uh, link you to the church's website, the sermons page. You can download a transcript of this sermon as well as find a way to be able to get in contact with me. And then I believe on Tuesday or so, um, audio transcript of what we cover tonight will be up on the website as well. So that's a little way for you guys to have some feedback with us. So this, uh, this morning we're going to be exploring in living in your first love using Colossians 3.1 as a starting point. And there Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Out of this, our home verse, I want to try to draw two major objectives for us to be able to understand this morning. The first one is, I want to be able to understand what exactly does it mean to be raised with Christ? Secondly, I want to know how we are supposed to seek those things which are above. Right To do this, I want to try to tell a story, a story that will come in three parts. The story begins with a conflict. Part two is the cure. Part three is the future. So let's go ahead and pray and get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for scripture. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. God, we're here to understand and know more about and able to apply to our lives your word. So we need your help in that. We're asking for it now. We believe you're good. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Conflict. My conflict, I think, started shortly after I was born, but it really became apparent. Um, really became apparent a couple of years ago. See, I used to think I was a really nice guy. And then I got married. See, God has a way of using marriage to expose the areas in your heart and life that still need a lot of extra work. So I thought I understood love, selflessness, patience, long-suffering. Turns out I didn't. So I'd be somewhere without my wife early on in our marriage, and somebody would ask me, hey, where's your better half? At first I thought it was a joke, and then I realized it's true. You see, because I would read in places like Ephesians 5 where the Bible says husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, selflessly giving himself up for her. Hmm. There's a conflict here. There's a conflict between who I am And who Christ is calling me to be There's a conflict between what I do And what scripture asks of me And this is the fundamental conflict I think that we all face And if being married doesn't do it for you Then certainly having kids will This is my family We've got this beautiful 11 month boy He's Paxton He's gorgeous He's a complete joy He is also the most selfish person I've ever met He has no concept of the needs of other people. He only thinks about himself all the time. So if he has a need that strikes at, say, three in the morning, there is nothing stopping him at all from standing in his crib screaming until one of us comes in and attends to his needs. And most of the time, this is my wife, Courtney. There are reasons for this, but I think most of them involve my own selfishness. So there we are, night after night. My child, it's Lord knows what time, and he needs something. And my wife, bless her, hasn't slept for a whole night's sleep from close to a year. <sighs> Drags herself out of bed, goes down the hall, and opens up my son's room and goes inside. And there serves my son. Where am I? Oh, don't worry about me. I'm back in bed. I'm doing fine, cozy. I'm asleep. But sometimes, and this is the awful reality, sometimes I'm not asleep. Sometimes I am in bed pretending to be asleep. (laughs) Pretending to be asleep so as to avoid the responsibility of taking care of both my wife and child, the woman that I vowed to love, cherish, and protect forever. And I realized then and there that that gap that exists between who I am, my humanity, God's holiness, it's big, and there's nothing I can do to cross it. To understand this point a little bit more fully from a biblical point of view, we've got to go back to the beginning of all stories. In Genesis chapter 1, it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was. All right, so notice the characters in the story so far. You've got God, you've got God's Spirit hovering over the waters, and you've got God's spoken word. This is, in the very first verse of the Bible, an allusion to the Trinity, The doctrine that got developed later of our triune God, that is one God who exists in three persons, and in that trinity exists mutual love and honor and respect. And so from that love they created, not because they were bored or lonely or had nothing better to do, They created Adam and Eve as the pinnacle of their creation and they called them very good and the love that the Trinity shared amongst themselves was poured out into Adam and Eve and they were friends and so they brought them aside there in the Garden of Eden. You can see it now. Up on a high hill, they're surveying this gorgeous creation that they had made and God turns to Adam and he says, Adam, all of this, all of this is yours. Cool, thanks God. (laughs) But do you see see that tree? Mm Mm-hmm. That Just that one. Do me a favor, don't, don't touch it. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. Okay, sure. God had asked Adam and Eve, please obey me about that tree. And that was it. God doesn't offer much in the way of explanation. He just says, obey me about the tree and expects that Adam and Eve, because they love him, will do so. But then, like every good story, conflict comes. And in Genesis chapter 3, you see that serpent slither his way up next to Eve, and she pulls her aside, and Adam's there, and she goes, Eve. And he tells her a lie. You ready for the lie? The lie sounds like this. Eve, don't you think that life would be more fun if you obeyed your own passion and desire and not God's word? Don't you think that life would be better if you, not God, were at the center of your life? And Adam and Eve believed that lie. They took the fruit of that tree And they ate. But it wasn't so much the eating, because the eating was just an outward manifestation of what was happening internally in their hearts. What they had done in that one act of disobedience had evicted God from being the center of their heart and chosen instead a lifestyle of selfishness. And as a necessary result, because God's holiness and our sinfulness cannot coexist, God must evict Adam and Eve from the garden. Let me try to paint a different picture for you. Imagine yourself now as a small child, tall enough to walk, but still short enough you have to reach up to hold on to your parents' hand. You're moving quickly through a crowded space. There are many people around. It's unfamiliar. It's dangerous. It's scary. There's chaos. The only protection and safety that you have, but it is enough, is that you're holding on to the hand of your dad. It does not matter what happens around you. So long as you are connected to your father, everything will be okay. In Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world and the handhold between us and our God is severed. And Adam and Eve leave the garden as small children, scared and alone in a broken and cursed world. And all of us follow in their footprints. We share in their same spiritual DNA. We too, as children of Adam, are fundamentally separated from our creator God. And that, friends, is a big deal. Let me show you what the Bible talks about when it talks about our condition there. The Bible describes us in this position as being alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. It means that we were citizens of a foreign country. We didn't belong to God's territory anymore. Satan had come in and established domain over our hearts and lives. Now we're under his authority and rule. It goes on to say, also in Colossians 2, that we were dead in your trespasses. That means that sin had caused spiritual death to come upon us all. The moment that Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, they died. They died spiritually. Spiritual death is separation from God. And all of the war and sickness and plague and selfishness and fraud and lying that has marked the course of human history since then is simply one ginormous body of evidence that says we are fundamentally flawed, separated from the God who loves us. That, friends, is a big deal. So what does this mean for us right now? It means, how does it mean, what does it mean to be raised with Christ? It means we were all once spiritually dead. We were all separated from God And without hope. That, friends, is the fundamental conflict of our time. But we serve a good God, and He did not leave us there. He gives a secure. This is what we'll talk about next in part two. Fast forward from Adam and Eve leaving the garden on that dark day all the way through the beginning of Jesus' ministry, as Mark tells it, in his gospel. I want to give a hat tip to Timothy Keller. He's an author that wrote a book called King's Cross and really helped me put this connection together. At the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, as Mark tells it, he gets baptized. He goes down to the Jordan River. He meets John the Baptist. He gets baptized, and as he comes up out of the water, what happens? There are two things. The Bible tells it like this it says, The Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And these are good words to hear from your dad. But notice the characters in the story. Who are they? You've got God, you've got God's Spirit hovering over the water, and you've got God's Word now infleshed in the person of Jesus Christ. Does this sound familiar? What is Mark doing? Mark is intentionally linking the story of creation in Genesis chapter 1 with the story of redemption in Mark chapter 1. The same love that existed, that caused the world to be, never went away just because sin entered the world. Instead, it stayed through, and God developed a strategy by which we could come back to Him. The same love, the first love, is back. What happens next in the story? Well, just like in Genesis, temptation came. Just like in Mark, the Bible says that immediately Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, who was there for 40 days and 40 nights, and at the end of that time, the enemy comes to tempt him again, along the very same lines that he tried to tempt Adam and Eve with this lie. The lie to Jesus was, wouldn't it be amazing if I could give you all of the glory, power, fame and recognition this world has to offer if you do just one thing. Jesus, reject God at the center of your life. And where Adam and Eve failed in the Garden of Eden, Jesus succeeds in the wilderness. So what does this do? It puts Jesus on a trajectory of God-centeredness so much to the point that he would go on to say, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And that statement led him to the cross. And before he gets there, at the end of his earthly ministry, we find Jesus in another garden. This time it's the garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus and God are having a conversation just like God and Adam and Eve had a conversation in the Garden of Eden. The question is the same. Will you obey me about that tree? Except for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, that tree is the cross on Calvary. And where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus succeeded and in going to the cross delivered us delivered us from the condemnation and misery of a self-centered life he took all of our sin upon him at that cross because of his obedience to god the father and in so doing allows us now to share in a relationship with our daddy god again that issue of the conflict that existed between us and god our sinfulness his divine nature that has that bridge has been gapped now by the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me show you how excited Paul gets about this when he talks to the Colossian believers about what happened because of that time. He says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption of sins. Before Jesus came along, you were dead on the side of the road in a war zone and you got medevaced out of there into the kingdom of God, resuscitated, kaboom! Now you're living again in God's kingdom. This is what Jesus has done for us. This is amazing. We no longer are subject to the influence of the enemy because of what Jesus has done, transferring us from one system to another. We're now under God's rules. It says we have, uh, in in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That sin issue that came in with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 now exits with the cross and the gospels. Let's go on to see also what uh, Paul says to the Colossian believers. He says, He has now reconciled you in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Not only does faith in Jesus Christ stamp your spiritual passport for heaven and secure your eternal future, not only now, it repairs the relationship that was broken because of sin in our life. You know what God sees when He looks at you now? Holy and blameless. Above reproach. And please, friends, listen to me closely on this one. There's somebody playing defense out there, and he will lie to you about your value and your worth, and he will use the past sin in your life to try to corrupt your thinking into saying that you're not worth God's attention. Listen to what Scripture says. Go back. This is what, so this is what we're going to Go back to the other one, please. Listen to what Scripture says. It says you are holy and blameless and above reproach. Let those words sink in deep because that's important for you to hear because there will come a time in which you don't want to believe that and yet you need to stand on scripture, not feeling. Now let's go on to see what he says in Colossians chapter two. It says, and you who are once dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Because of sin, we deserved hell." Because of sin, we deserve death. That was the legal requirement. God cannot be a just God and just sweep sin underneath the cosmic rug. He must deal with it. He dealt with it because Jesus went to the cross and canceled that debt. So God can be both just and justifier of the ungodly. What does it mean to be raised with Christ? means that the power of sin, Satan, and death is broken. It means that we're now living in a new life in the kingdom of God because of Christ and we're underneath his rule and protection. And that, friends, is the cure to your conflict. But a couple questions need to be asked at this point. The first one is, how do I know I've been cured? The answer is simple. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, he has made an opportunity for you. You receive that opportunity as a free gift by faith. How do I know I have faith? Faith is simply a conversation between you and God that sounds something like this. God, "Mm, I know I can't do this on my own, so please help me. I think Jesus is the only way to heaven. I may not understand everything right now, but I know... I need you not me it's not that difficult that is an entryway into the kingdom of God but some of you might be here having walked with God for a very long time and asked yourself I get all this I still struggle what am I supposed to do I know Jesus died for me how should I continue in my future let's go to part three that's what we want to talk about next Part three is called the future. You see, I've entitled this message, Living in Your First Love, but you may have noticed that up to this point, we've said almost nothing about any of you. This is intentional because one of the key differences between Christianity and other world religions is that other world religions are fundamentally a set of advice on how you ought to behave in order to please God. Christianity is not advice, it is news. The gospel is the good news that God has moved on our behalf to reconcile us to him. Do you see the difference? Christianity is news. What is news? News is historical incident happening in historical time with historical ramifications. Something happened at Calvary that changed the whole course of human history. That happened. That was news not advice. Our response is to say, thank you. You see, this is why the Bible places such a high emphasis on the way that you think. I believe that what you believe, what you think about God is simply the most important thing in your life for two reasons. Number one, it will determine your eternal destiny. And number two, it will determine your daily life. All of your habits and how you choose to live your life will, in large part, be determined by what you think about God. So I want to show you how Paul talks to the Colossian believers about what's going on. He says in Colossians 1, 9 and 10, he prays for them. He says, I pray that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to God and bearing fruit in every good work. Back up a little bit to see Paul's logic right here. The first thing that Paul wants you to do is to be filled with wisdom, comma, so as to walk in a manner worthy of Lord. You're seeing how he's building his argument here. What comes first? Is it good behavior, or is it proper thinking? It's proper thinking. What you believe about God is essential. And this is why we've taken so much time to try to stress this issue about where we've been and what Christ has done for us. Because if we try to jump right into, I'm going to be a good Christian, and you try really hard, you will only be frustrated. I want to show you how this works out as you go back to Colossians 3, chapter 1, the same principle of thinking first, and then it informs your walking. This is our home verse. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Understanding what it means to be raised with Christ is the essence of what we're talking about thinking. So, if we've done that, seek the things that are above. That's the walking. Now, I'm going to show you in just a second a whole list of behavioral, ethical, and legal moral requirements that Paul writes. This is all throughout the New Testament, oftentimes. And when you come across these things, you may feel like, aha. A list. Good, I can check it off right here. Okay? And so you focus on these things, and when you fail, you feel as though you have somehow disappointed God, and he doesn't like you as much as you did before. That's not true. When the Bible gives us a list like what I'm about to show you, it always comes from the point of not do this in order to please God. It is, look at what God has done on your behalf. Here's an appropriate way to respond because of your new life in Jesus Christ. So let's see the list. This is Colossians 3, 5 through 8. He says, I want you to put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. A little bit later he says, put to death anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. These lists deal primarily with two separate categories. The two categories are first, sex and money. The second one is temper and sinful speech. Take a look at this list and ask yourself, are all of these things dead to me? In my honest moments, I realize that not all of them are for me. Yet I'm up here preaching about how amazing our new life in Jesus Christ is. So what's the catch? How is it that Jesus, having delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, hallelujah, are we still struggling? Why is there still conflict? That's what I want to talk about with the time we have remaining. I think the first thing, it always comes back to our thinking. For many of us, we grew up believing Certain lies about ourselves, our identity, our worth, our future, and our potential. And those things carry with us. What Scripture says is that as we focus on Christ, we become transformed. How do you counteract a whole raft load and lifetime of negative, non-biblical thinking? With a consistent, heavy dose of biblical reading and prayer. I'm sorry if you came to church this weekend expecting to hear something a little more sophisticated than prayer and reading the Bible is good for you. But I have to say it because it's the truth. Always has been, always will be. You've got to start there. Not some guilt-ridden thing, but consistently. And what you'll find, the reason why this is so important is that as you begin to ingest large amounts of the word of God and you begin to understand more fully who Jesus was, you get a chance to know the guy. you'll find it easier to respond in a way that reflects him. You'll find it easier so that when those triggers towards sinfulness come, you'll have the better opportunity to be able to respond in a way that honors God through the process of renewing your thinking. So maybe the next time you find yourself completely coming unhinged on somebody or falling into a sinful behavior, stop and ask yourself, what lie did I believe that motivated this behavior? Where did that come from? And then the next time you open scripture, be praying and asking God, God, I know somewhere deep down inside of me I'm believing something that isn't of you. Would you please reveal that to me and then please expose what truth I need to hear to counteract the lie that I'm believing and behaving on. And that process of doing that, you'll renew your thinking. The second process is this, to reform your habits. See, many of you, take anger for an example. Many of you, that's maybe all you know You respond in anger to your kids because when you were a kid, your parents responded in anger to you and their parents to them. And so it's almost hardwired into your brain that if a specific response comes in, there's an automatic or specific input, there's an automatic response. And you might say you're sorry afterwards and saying, I didn't mean to, I didn't, you know, I'm sorry, right? But it's almost as though if you, there's, it bypasses the conscious system and your response is automatic and negative. So how do you undo that? I've got some hopeful news for you. The Holy Spirit is bigger than your family history, is bigger than the chemical makeup of your brain, is bigger than the things that trip you up on a regular basis. The Holy Spirit is bigger than that. And we've all heard stories about the addict who came in and said, I was addicted to everything and then God cured me in a day and now it's never been a struggle for me again. Thanks. I wish I was you. (laughs) Because I still struggle. It's still tough. Let me give you some practical ways to maybe look into reforming your habits. Go back to the example of anger. Say you've just completely come unglued on your spouse or your kids or something like that. Call timeout. Call timeout and say, I need to do this again. And then replay that portion of the conversation that brought you to the moment of you coming unglued. And even if inside you're still livid and there's nothing in you that wants to say grace... Be gracious. Are you faking it? Replay the conversation, and instead of doing something negative, now say something positive or at least say nothing at all. Is it fake? Yeah, sure is. But is it helpful to rewire your brain so that when that input comes, the output isn't so negative? Yes. And if you do that long enough, you'll begin to undo how you fundamentally operate into a way that reflects more of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a second example. If you find yourself saying you're sorry for the same thing for years, it may be a good time to look into getting some help. Go talk to a counselor. Go talk to a pastor. Go talk to a friend. Even the act of just voicing whatever it is that you always have to say you're sorry for will help. And hear me out, it is not a sign of weakness to ask for help. Another example might be um, take a cue from Jesus' playbook. Remember back in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan? You know how he rebuked Satan with scripture. Every lie that Satan brought at him, he brought scripture in return. Do the same thing. Get to know your Bible. Start yelling at Satan. You've got scripture. You've got God on your side, and the Bible says, "I believe it's in First uh, Peter, if you resist the devil, he will flee." Begin with those small steps. Last thing, maybe, is uh, take an honest look at the things in your life that are tripping you up. They're called triggers. There's a trigger that comes in, and a sinful response that goes out. Take a look at those things, and it may be worthwhile, with the support of your family, to say, "You know what? It's extremely inconvenient." but I'm going to remove this item or individual or something from my life. And I'll tell you what happens there. If you do that, you may feel like you're making a sacrifice on the short term, but what you gain in the long term, in terms of having a close, vibrant relationship with your daddy God, you will look back on that and say, It never was a sacrifice. Look at what you got in return a relationship with your heavenly father where you can stand without reproach and beyond shame with our heavenly God. So, friends, that's the future. But this leads us back to a question that we were asking at the beginning. What does it mean to be raised with Christ? How do we seek the things that are above? To be raised with Christ means that we were all once dead because of sin. But through Jesus Christ, we now have the opportunity to be raised to new life with him. We were children of Adam by birth and therefore subject to sin. We become children of Christ by faith. When we're raised into new life, to live with God our Father. That's what it means to be raised with Christ. And what does it mean to seek the things that are above? Simply, that as a result of returning to our first love, our whole lives are re-centered on God, and all of our daily habits focus on Him. As we come back into this time of musical worship here in a moment, I don't know your spiritual condition. I do know, uh, I do know that God loves you. And I do know that God is here. And that he's present and that he loves you a great deal. So if you're here today for the first, uh, and you've never really spoken to God before, can I encourage you to take this next few moments to do that? Just start talking to him. He's a good listener. He really is. He loves you. And maybe you could say something to the effect of God, I don't know much about you, but I do know what I'm doing right now isn't working. And I believe that Jesus is my answer. It doesn't have to be complicated. He's a good God. He's waiting, He's loving. If you've been talking to God for a while and um, thank Him for His grace, it's a big deal that you're here. It's a big deal that God's brought you this far. And it's worthwhile to say thank you every now and again. So start by saying thank you and then maybe take a moment to listen and ask God, God, is there anything that you need that you want me to do or stop doing in order that I might draw closer to you. See what he says. We're going to have our prayer teams come forward and they're going to be located on the sides of the sanctuary. And as we go back into worship, you're welcome to utilize them. They're more than happy to pray with you, to come alongside you. I don't want you to lose sight of the fact of where we were and who we are now because of Jesus Christ. He's a good and big God. Heavenly Father, we thank you because we are no longer citizens of Satan's domain, that you have given us new life through your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for obeying. Thank you for your obedience that gives us now the capacity to obey God as well. Lord Jesus, help our lives as foolish and broken and simple as we are to be reflections of you and your holiness and grandeur and light. God, help us to remove the dark parts from our world so that we could focus more clearly on you and the world could see us and say, that has got to be what I need. Lord, we can't do any of this without you. So we invite you here to this place as we worship you. Let our worship be as a result of our understanding that you have loved us from the very beginning. You have pursued us. You have showed us that you're never gonna quit on us. For that, God, we are very grateful. We are very grateful indeed. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen.